if you'll uh, take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 11. I wanted to say I'm so thankful uh, for the way the little children are working hard at listening. I know sometimes it is hard to listen to someone talk for so long, and uh, we notice you uh, working hard, and it's really a joy uh, to my heart to see the little kids come up to Marta after the service. You remember that we've been giving uh, the children a word to help them listen, and it's good when you're young. This is God's word, so it's good when you're young to begin the habit of working at listening, and so we're proud of you, and uh, we'll give you a word today. The word for uh, the sermon today for the kids to be listening to is prayer. It's prayer, and so you should hear that a lot, and uh, if you're a little bit older and you want to try to answer a question as you listen, uh, listen and try to understand why Jesus tells the stories he does in Luke chapter 11. See if you could answer that. Hopefully we'll all be able to answer that as we look at this passage together. So if you'll take your Bible, if you haven't already, and open to Luke 11, I want to begin by reading uh, verses 1 through 13 today. This is our text. Uh, we're primarily uh, going to be looking at verses 5 through 13, but let me uh, read the whole thing. Now, uh, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is God's word. That is God's word. Let's take a moment and pray for God's help. Father, you speak through what you have spoken. And we need to hear you. So Lord, we come to you uh, needy. We are your children. You have saved us, but we are needy. And we've got sin and we've got distractions. And so we ask you, Lord, please help us. Humble us, Spirit of God, that our ears might actually be open to what you have to say. And change us, Lord. We don't want to be people who only hear your word. We want to be doers. So God, we ask that you would change us as we listen to you speak today. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, as you know, it's a special Sunday for us as Christians. It uh, is uh, Palm Sunday. And so we're in uh, the middle of Luke, we're in Luke chapter 11, but it's Palm Sunday, though some people think it might have been Palm Monday, actually. But this is the Sunday 
we usually remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem for the last time, where he's, he's basically reenacting this big old prophecy from the book of Zechariah as he comes down the Mount of Olives on a donkey with all of these people cheering and celebrating him as the coming king. This is a big moment in the Gospel of Luke, though, of course, we know that everything changed really quickly, and it's just less than a week later that Jesus is crucified and buried, which, of course, is something that we're used to. I don't know if uh, used to is the right word. I hope it's not the right word, but we know the story at least. So this week, it's Good Friday, and we're not going to be surprised when we get together and talk about Jesus dying on the cross because we know that's how it goes. But of course, the disciples didn't. That's something that Luke makes really clear. Jesus totally knew and understood what was coming and why it was coming. And that's even why he weeps as he enters Jerusalem. Everyone else is cheering. And then Jesus just sits down, basically, and starts sobbing. Even the word that Luke uses for crying is the kind of word you would use for someone who is sobbing, whose shoulders are shaking. And Jesus is crying because he knows he's about to be rejected, and more specifically because he knows what that means is coming for Israel. And yet, at that moment, the disciples didn't. Instead, they had all of these expectations about how Jesus was going to fix everything and establish his kingdom. And Many of those expectations were actually based on Old Testament promises, so they weren't making all of this up. The Old Testament does promise how the Messiah is going to come and defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom and reverse the curse, and that's part of why the disciples were following Jesus in the first place. It's definitely why they were always arguing about who was supposed to be the greatest, because they thought this was happening. And as they entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with everyone celebrating, they must have been thinking that it was beginning. So it's hard to exaggerate how confusing the cross must have been for them. They were thinking victory. They were thinking triumph. They were thinking glory, and yet instead Jesus is stripped, beaten, and nailed to a cross. He's crucified, and that actually was the beginning of an era, a time period, in which, for the most part, it looks like Jesus is losing. The, the church is losing. God's plan is losing. That's the time we're living in for the most part, and one of the reasons the book of Luke is written is to help us see how Jesus prepared the disciples for that reality. This wasn't something that was unexpected to Jesus. Even though the disciples weren't always really listening, this is something that he was getting them ready for. And that's beginning all the way back in Luke chapter 9. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, you see Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And as he sets his face to Jerusalem, one of his primary goals is to teach the disciples that he has to die and to explain to them what the crucifixion means for them. 
And you remember, he says that one thing it means is that they are going to have to pick up their cross. And this becomes a theme in the Gospel of Luke, really. They were expecting to be kings. And yet most of them were going to end up humiliated and suffering and even dying like Jesus. And so Jesus has to teach them. And not just them, us as well. How are we supposed to live in this time period right now as his followers? If a lot of our lives as Christians isn't going to be Palm Sunday right now, it's going to actually be Good Friday, if you know what I'm saying. How are we supposed to keep going in the middle of that? Because all of this stuff that we see around us is so wrong. And there are all of these problems that we see in this world. It's not how it's supposed to be. And that shouldn't stop bothering us. There are all these problems that we're wanting to see God fix, and yet it doesn't seem like God's fixing them. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and yet look at this world the way it is right now. What are we supposed to do with that as a church? And in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, we've been seeing that Jesus gives us two key priorities. Jesus is explaining what we do now in this world as it is. And the first, you remember, the story of Mary and Martha, is the priority of sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his word. In a world that is confusing and we expect God to be working one way and we're not seeing all these big promises being fulfilled the way we're hoping, we've absolutely got to make hearing Jesus speak through his word our top priority. Of course, we should be doing something and working, but Jesus knows that if that's all we do, we're going to get confused. And so listening to his word has to be top priority or we're going to get lost. That is one. That is first. But then second, prayer. And this is what we've been focusing on in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. What to do while we wait for Jesus? We pray. We have to make a priority out of corporate prayer. You remember, this is, Lord, teach us, give us. This is corporate prayer. And first, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray in verses one through four. You can split this down into two sections. Verses one through four, first Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And you can understand why he has to teach them how to pray because after the cross, they would be asking, how do we pray now? Because while Jesus is with you and he's healing everyone and all these people are waving palm branches and crying out hallelujah, hosanna, it's easy to pray your kingdom come. But after he's crucified, it's a lot harder. And so you can imagine a disciple being like, you know, I've been reading my Bible and hoping for the Messiah to come and fix everything, and that's why I started following Jesus in the first place, and yet now he has come, and he's been crucified, and we're living in this time where everything seems to be going wrong, and it feels like evil is winning. How do we pray now? I mean, was I even wrong? Were we wrong to be longing for the kingdom? In fact, that's actually 
the very question they were asking, if you remember those two disciples in Luke 24 walking back to Emmaus. And yet in the Lord's prayer, Jesus is saying, no, you weren't wrong. How do you pray? He teaches them, verses one through four. You keep on praying all these really big prayers for God to fulfill all of his promises. How do you pray? You pray, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. That is what needs to drive your prayers. And what does that mean? When you pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, you're saying, God, in spite of how things look, I know you're my father. I know we have a relationship with you. We are your children and we're praying that you would fill this earth with your glory and that everyone everywhere would know that you are king and that you would establish the kingdom that we read about, the kingdom that you promised and defeat evil and judge sin and make this world a place where we would experience your presence the way we're longing and your blessing forever. And in the meantime, Lord, you know what we want? We just want you to help us get there. Help us to be faithful. Give us this day our daily bread. We're not trying to make this world our home. We're just trying to be faithful servants in the meantime. So please supply what we need to keep on serving you and forgive us our sins the way we forgive each other. In other words, keep our relationship with you and with each other the way it should be. And Lord, 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 help. Please protect us. Don't let us fall into sin and specifically don't let us give up under pressure and start wandering away. It's like Jesus, when you look at how he tells his disciples to pray, he's explaining the cross. What I've just revealed about the cross, about the Messiah having to suffer and die and about you having to pick up your cross as well. I want you to know that doesn't actually change the plan at all. The suffering and persecution that you're going to experience right now doesn't change the plan. So how do you pray after the cross? Honestly, it's not much different than how you were supposed to pray before the cross. In fact, you know, you can find most of the statements in the Lord's Prayer in the Psalms. I sometimes do that. I look at the Lord's Prayer and then I go back to the Psalms to find the psalmist praying that because it expands. It's almost all there. So in other words, you look at the Lord's Prayer and it's like Jesus is telling the disciples, I know you had some hopes that God was gonna keep his promises one way and you thought you had it figured out and now you're learning, if you're listening at least, you're learning it's not gonna be that way. I'm gonna to have to get crucified first and, and it's gonna be really hard for you as well. And so your expectations aren't gonna be met in this world right now the way you were thinking they would. I know all that, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you should stop crying out to God to keep those promises. You keep on praying, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. In fact, you look at the Lord's Prayer, there's not much different there than they could have prayed before. But maybe there is one thing that is a little different about the Lord's Prayer than the Old Testament. And that's that you are even more confident now after Jesus. I mean, you see how Jesus teaches us to call God Father, and that's not the way you would find an Old Testament saint normally addressing God as an individual. This is not beginning your prayer Oh, great God of Israel anymore. This is Father, Father. 
Listen, how are we supposed to be living now in a world that's messed up? What's supposed to be our priority? Prayer, confident prayer. Jesus wants us to be praying consistently and confidently to God to keep all his promises that we read about in the Bible. That's how we're supposed to pray. Now, of course, the question is why? There are two parts to verses one through 13. Verses one to four is how to pray and verses five to 13 is why. And the disciples needed the why. As they're about to see Jesus being crucified and as they're about to enter this period of persecution and as so much of how God's gonna work is gonna be so different than how they were expecting him to work, they needed to know why they could keep praying with confidence. Do you understand the question? Because I think that's an important question for us as well, personally, because while maybe we're more used to the idea of Jesus dying on the cross and even intellectually we understand this is an era of of suffering primarily for us as believers, but sometimes it it, gets heavy, really heavy. And there are a lot of sad things happening. And even if you're a hopeful person, it can start to feel a little overwhelming. We know we're supposed to pray, but this world is so discouraging and there are so many problems and so often evil seems to be winning that sometimes it's like, why, why pray? How do I, how do I keep on going? I mean, I don't know about you, but personally I've never had a year like this year and I'm not so much talking COVID because that's sad, but I, I'm more talking about the evil in this world, kind of the relentless, like Every day you wake up being exposed to more and more. And so I'm usually pretty positive. And yet it's it's felt like a little this year, like one thing after another. And so there's the physical problems. You're like, we can't fix that. And and yet more than that, there's all this evil in the world. And then what's been the most difficult is all the sin just in in the church among people who say they're actually Christians. And So you read about God's plan and you look at the world and you know you're supposed to pray and you're supposed to hope, but sometimes you lose a little motivation because you're like, is it gonna actually do anything? Does God hear me? Does God actually wanna keep this promise? I see the plan, but does God wanna keep this promise? And that's the question behind verses five through 13. You have to understand that question to understand what's going on. Because obviously Jesus knows that it's not much good to know how to pray if you're not motivated to pray. And so he's motivating us in spite of how things appear to keep on praying to God to keep his promises. And actually more than that, to keep on praying confidently. And the key to the whole thing is verses nine and 10. That's like the hinge on which the passage turns where Jesus gives a command And he makes a promise. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And that is why pray. That's Jesus's answer. First of all, pray because you're commanded to. Ask, seek, knock. Those words are all commands to pray. And they're in the present tense. So it is continually pray. This is a command to keep on praying, to pray how? To pray the way he's told them to pray. These big old prayers for the kingdom of God to come and for God to be glorified, they're commanded, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. 
Keep on pleading with God to do what only he can do and fix everything. And yet Jesus doesn't only command that here, that's first, but second, he motivates them to obey this command by giving them this absolutely huge promise, which I think is the heart of the passage. This is a, a call to confident prayer. Jesus wants them to know God is is going to keep his promise. And you can see that by the way he says it and the way he repeats himself. Ask and what? It will be given to you. Seek and you what? Will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Is there any doubt in Jesus's mind? There's no doubt in Jesus's mind. And in case we missed it somehow, he actually goes on and repeats himself in verse 10. Everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And sure, that could be a promise about prayer generally, and that's the way sometimes we read it, and I think it does have some application, but remember, it comes right after the Lord's Prayer, which is so focused on the kingdom. And it's in the middle of a section in Luke where Jesus is explaining to the disciples about how they were going to experience suffering. And he's preparing them for how to live during this time period, which is going to be difficult. And so I think primarily Jesus is saying here, look, I know I'm going to die on the cross. And, and you're going to have to pick up your cross. And I know it's going to get really hard. But that shouldn't stop you from going back to God's word and finding those statements about how God's going to solve the problem of sin and going to God and continually asking, seeking, knocking, pleading with him to do that. Why? Two answers. First, verses 9 and 10, it's about obedience. Ask, it's a command. But it's not just pointless obedience. Second, there's a promise. God is going to answer. Ask and it will be given, which is this big promise. And because it's such a big promise, Jesus knows you're going to look at that and be tempted to wonder about it and even lose heart when it comes to prayer. That's a, that's a real concern for Jesus. And so in verses 5 through 8 and verses 11 through 13, he gives three assurances. Why pray a command and a promise? Why can we be so sure about that promise? Three assurances. Specifically, Jesus tells two stories and he makes a statement, which are reasons we can be confident that God is going to do exactly what he's promised to do. And these two stories are here to motivate you to pray. And the first story begins in verse 5, where Luke tells us, and he said to them, which of you has a friend? And it's kind of like Jesus is making this personal, as in put yourself in this position. Which of you? And actually, the way that he expresses this is important because there are some translations that have it. Suppose one of you has a friend. And that's not quite the best way to put it because this is a, a really common way that we find Jesus speaking throughout the Gospels. Which of you? And every time Jesus begins a question this way, it is a big old hint that he's expecting a negative answer. Like, which of you? Obviously, none of you. Which means while Jesus is asking a question here in verse 5, that's going all the way down to verse 7. It's a long question. You have to stick with it. But even with just the way the question begins, we already know the answer at the end is going to be something like, no one. 
or, or, or maybe none of us, we might actually even translate this, none of us, if we have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And obviously Jesus is not saying if that happened, none of us would go and ask our friends for help. That's not actually the part the people in Jesus's day would have had a hard time understanding because in those days, in that culture, hospitality was really a big deal. And so if someone came in and surprised you after a journey, even in the middle of the night, and especially if he was your friend, it was like a moral duty for you to open up your home and to provide for them. I like that about certain cultures. For me, it feels like it's uh, not really an American thing. We're kind of tight here. And so we're more like, hey, go find yourself a hotel room. If someone showed up, we might say, uh, well, seriously, what are you doing? You didn't even call. But that's not at all how it would have worked in Jesus's day. If you showed up at someone's house and they weren't expecting you, they still would have felt an absolute responsibility to care for you. It was like a matter of honor. And so uh, we felt this more in Africa. In Africa, if someone showed up at your house, they were more important to you than anything else, really. And so if you had an appointment with someone, even, you were supposed to scrap the appointment because you had that person in front of you that you needed to take care of. And everybody understood that. And so they could imagine this scene better than I could because here Jesus is talking about someone who's come from a long way and he's tired and he's shown up unexpectedly at your house and you have nothing to feed him. And this was different in Africa as well because you had to feed them. It would be offensive to even ask, do you want something to eat? Because you should just know, of course, they want something to eat. And so here's this person and you don't have anything, but you know you have to feed them. And you're feeling terrible about that. And yet it's not like there are any grocery stores open for you to get something for him. And so what do you do if you're living in a village back in Jesus's day, even though it's late, it's the middle of the night, and he emphasizes that because he wants you to feel this is a very inconvenient time. And yet in spite of that, he knows you would pretty much feel like you had to go over to another friend's house and ask for help, for maybe some bread. Which, of course, we know is going to make that friend's life a little more difficult, the one you're waking up, because it's like you're taking your problem and making it his problem. And Jesus gives us some of the excuses a person in that situation might be tempted to give in verse 7. And he will answer from within. And that kind of makes it sound a little like Jesus is saying, this is how he will respond. But I, I don't think that's quite the right way to hear this story. Instead, this is the part of the question that's connected to the which of you at the beginning. Like, which of you would ever expect a friend to respond like this? The answer being, none of you. So in terms of how the story goes, verse 7 is not the actual answer the friend gives. Verse 8 is what he does. But verse 7 is kind of setting the scene by reminding us of some of the reasons he might be feeling inside as to why he wouldn't want to respond that way. Like, first of all, it's, it's late. Uh, don't bother me. I, I know we're friends, but I don't like waking up in the middle of the night. Unless I guess I'm Huey, um, who seems like this would be easy for him. But the rest of us, we don't like waking up in the middle of the night. And so this is your problem, not mine. Besides, the door is now shut. And I guess many people back then had a sort of bar over the front door, which scholars say would have been a hassle to undo. 
And on top of that, he says, my children are with me in bed. And he's able to actually answer the door from the bed because it's just a one-room house he's living in. That would have been common. And so it's like he's thinking, listen, man, do you know what you're asking? If I get up, I'm going to wake up all my children as well. And of course, if you have children, you know you don't wake the baby up. You never wake the baby up. That was a, a rule in our family. You wake the baby up, you get to stay up with the baby. And uh, that doesn't really work well with daughters, of course, because they like babies, and so they want them to wake up. And yet the whole point here is that even with all those possible excuses, a person might be feeling for not wanting to get out of bed and answer his friend's request as Jesus is asking this question. He knows absolutely every single person listening to him can't even imagine a friend asking like that, responding to someone like that. That response would be out of the realm of possibility for them. Jesus is saying, which of you, if you have a friend and you go to him in the middle of the night because you have a real problem, you're not just asking him to play cards or something, this is an issue that matters. It's about hospitality, and the whole community would have been shamed if someone came and you didn't treat them with respect. And so the only reason you're waking your friend up is because you really need his help. And which of you, Jesus is asking, can imagine that your friend is going to respond and say, sorry, man, I can't help you. I don't, I don't want to wake up the kids. Plus, it's cold, and I don't want to get out of bed. I mean, I think everyone in Jesus' day hearing that would almost be laughing because there's no one. That would never happen. In America, we can imagine that. It's too late. That excuse might work. But in Jesus' day, in the Middle East, with hospitality as important as it was, you just read through the Old Testament. You see that, right? Or, or you can even go back a couple chapters in Luke, when Jesus sent the disciples into the Samaritan village, looking for a place to stay. Luke 9, and that village turned them away. What did the disciples say? They, sent, they, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire? to come down from heaven and consume them, which means this was like a big deal hospitality. They were like, yeah, it makes sense. God should damn them because they didn't show us hospitality. And so this would have been an absolutely outrageous thing for someone to say, which is why Jesus adds in verse eight, I tell you. And that's like, you know this, I tell you, though he will not get up. And it's equally possible to translate that if he will not get up, which I think is probably better here. Like, even if worst case, this is just like an outrageously terrible person, your neighbor. He's like so evil and he doesn't care about his relationship with you. And so even if he wouldn't get up because he's your friend and yeah, most people would, everyone would, but even if he wouldn't, in the end, you know, he's still going to get up in Jesus's words. Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And that's a hard little word, actually, impudence, his impudence. What does impudence mean? Because it's easy to assume that what Jesus is talking about is persistence here. Like the friend keeps on asking and that's why he finally gets up. And that's what some people think impudence means. So he doesn't get up because he's a friend, but he gets up because the friend won't stop asking for bread. And that's pretty much how this story throughout the ages has been typically interpreted. But it, and it's the point of a very similar story Jesus tells in Luke 18. And initially that's what I thought it was the point of the story here. And yet that's not really the word, that's not really what the word impudence means. That's the problem. Like, that's not what it means anywhere else, ever. And so it's used 258 times in ancient Greek texts that scholars have studied outside the Bible, and I'm always amazed that people know this stuff, but 
They do, apparently. And scholars say there is no example anywhere else, except where people were struggling with what Jesus might have meant here, where anyone else ever used the word impudence that way. Because it doesn't actually mean perseverance or pers persistence. It's a, a different word. In fact, one scholar puts it, the point can be stated categorically that the traditional translation as persistence is incorrect and should be assigned once and for all to a short paragraph among the historical oddities of biblical mistranslation because instead the word impudence literally means without shame. It's, you could say, a lack of sensitivity to what is proper. Another definition I found was recklessness, obtrusiveness, a disregard of consideration by the one making the request. In other words, it's being bold, but more in the negative sense normally, like being rude. It's like this friend you know who's not embarrassed by what should embarrass him, and so he just does stuff where you're always like, oh man, why, why would you ever do that? Like the person in this parable. Even though we see why he feels like he has to do it, what he's doing would normally be rude. It's the middle of the night, his friend is sleeping, he has children, he's gonna wake everyone up, and that's something people would normally consider inconsiderate. And we saw even the friend in verse seven is kind of thinking that, obviously. This is crazy, the children are with me, the door is locked, and this is a whole bunch of trouble. And yet even knowing all that doesn't stop the man, the friend asking, he's bold, and he doesn't let the possibility of his friend being upset stop him. And so he just goes and he knows his friend is gonna help, even if he doesn't want to, he, he's still going to help him. If for nothing else, just because of the fact that he was bold enough to come in the middle of the night knocking. And the point is, that is how we should be with God. In prayer. Knock. Knock. Be bold. And that's something we see illustrated throughout scripture. I think of, especially Luke, I think of how th those men had that paralyzed friend. And they brought him to Jesus while Jesus was teaching. And what do they do? They, they literally break the roof down to lower him to Jesus. And that's bold. Interrupting Jesus in the middle of a sermon with all those religious leaders around. Or that woman who had the discharge of all the blood for all those years, who was considered unclean by everyone else. And yet she was willing to risk everything, just the touch, the hem of Jesus' garment. And that's bold. It was a trembling bold but it's bold. Most religious leaders would have been throwing stones at her. Or the blind man who was sitting by the roadside begging later in Luke, and he hears the crowd going by, and he asks what it means, and he finds out it's Jesus, and so he just starts crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him, everyone else, is like, be quiet, man. Don't you know who this is? And yet, that only causes him to cry out more, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's bold. Or maybe even uh, one of the best illustrations, if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, think of Abraham after he's told by God that he's going to destroy Sodom. The text says, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And that's Bold. And you know, God says, if I, find in, or, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And you know what Abraham says? He's like, okay, but what about 45? And God says, okay, I won't destroy it for the sake of 45. And Abraham, you know, he's not stopping there. He's like, 40, 30, 20, 10, bold, bold. <laughs> 
shameless even. That is impudent prayer. And obviously, there are all kinds of reasons we might be able to come up with why it's not appropriate for people like us to be saying things like that or for people like us to be asking God for anything like that. And yet back in Luke 11, Jesus is encouraging us not to let those feelings of shame or inadequacy stop us from pleading with God and going to God and asking God to keep his promises. And the first way he encourages us is by reminding us that we all know, uh, if we all know a sinful human being is going to get out of the bed in the middle of the night to grant the request of a friend that he kind of thinks is rude, God is so much better than that. So much better. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon, the never begrutching God. And I like how he said the word begrutch. And to begrutch means to give resentfully or to give reluctantly. And he works through all these scriptures to prove that God is incredibly generous. He's the never begrutching God. He never gives resentfully. He never gives reluctantly. And so if you're making requests according to his will, he's not going to be thinking this is so much trouble. He's taking those requests seriously. And one place you could go to prove that is here in verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be open because that's the application basically to the story go to God go go confidently because you know God is not like your sleeping friend in any way he's not reluctant you can ask confidently you can ask impudently because he's not just some selfish human next door neighbor he's your perfect heavenly father and this is story number two verse 11 and it's kind of like the cheat sheet in case the first story was a little hard to understand and you missed the point, Jesus comes around to make it crystal clear. He says, what father among you, which is similar to which of you, in that it's expecting a negative answer as well. What father out there? And there, there's none. If a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. And that would obviously be like a seriously twisted father if he did that, because even most unbelieving fathers at least have some level of compassion for their children. And even if it's not a lot of compassion, at least most fathers aren't going to intentionally harm their kids when they're asking for help. Something is really wrong if a father, like they've gone past normal humanity even, if they're like that. And God is our father. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, that is the nature of our relationship as Christians. In fact, that's actually how we started the Lord's Prayer back in verse 2. So he's coming back around. We started saying, Father. And this is a big part of how we can be confident in prayer. I mean, because you can imagine someone asking you, how in the world do you think God is going to keep his promises when the world is the way it is? What is wrong with you? And we say, Look, we see the world for what it is, but one big reason we are confident that God will keep his promises is because we're not just looking at the world the way it is. We're looking at God and who he is. And we realize he is this great and awesome God. As we go to him in prayer, we're going into the presence of someone who is almighty and eternal and glorious and majestic. We're talking to someone who created universes with a word. And so there's nothing that can stop him from accomplishing his plan. And we are calling him father. We have this relationship, this 
family relationship. And the only reason we have this family relationship is because he sent his son to come and die to make it possible for us to be adopted into his family. And so because we look and we see who God is and all God's done already to bring us into his family, we see God's heart. Even though we can't understand everything that's going on right now, we're, we're still able to cry out confidently that God's going to keep his promises and he's not going to forget his plan. Because look, we know if even sinful human fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, verse 13, right at the end, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you see this is like a how much more then kind of argument. In other words, if you're not afraid to be rude with a sinful neighbor because you know he's going to help you, and if you expect a sinful human father to show compassion, how much more should you think God's going to be gracious and good and keep all his promises? And for me, that's convicting because sometimes we don't. It's like we actually have more confidence in our sinful neighbors than God or in sinful human fathers than God. When the reality is, yeah, life is hard and things are confusing, but God's explained. He has given us at least a basic explanation as to why things are the way they are, and he's already proven his generosity to us by designing and executing this great big plan of salvation. And so when we read about these about what he's going to do, these, these great big promises about what is coming and how he's going to fix the problem of sin and how he's going to reverse the curse and how he's going to do all these things the Bible tells us he's going to do, we know he's not messing with us. He's not messing with us. Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father? In other words, he's not evil, God. He's not evil, and so I can't explain how it's all going to work out or why everything goes the way it does. Of course I can't. But I know he's not evil. And so if he's made a promise, he's going to keep it. And if you look again at verse 13, Jesus finishes with a statement. You remember it's two stories and a statement, three assurances, why we should be praying confidently in spite of how things look. And Jesus has told the stories. The end of verse 13 is the statement. And it's really cool. It's really, it's, 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 it's so fun. It's actually part of why I had to come back early from, uh, not too early, but a little early from uh, Joshua Tree so I could change the sermon because this is, this is such, a cool, <laughs> such a cool statement. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is, what makes this exciting if you, is if you think about the context. So you have to think about the context. What have we been talking about praying for? We've been talking about praying for the kingdom to come. What were the disciples wanting if they were wanting what they should have been wanting at the moment Jesus is talking? They were wanting the kingdom to come. But what has Jesus just told them? He's told them it's not going to happen the way they think. He's going to the cross. Yet I'm saying that doesn't mean it's over. That's kind of the whole point of the Lord's Prayer. As he goes on to teach them how they're supposed to pray, the first thing he does is focus on them crying out to God to fulfill his promise about the kingdom. And then we've seen he challenges them to keep on crying out like that, to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to keep on knocking, and you will receive. And because that's such a big promise, he assures them if they do, they can be sure God will keep his promises because God's better than a selfish friend and he's better than a sinful father. And what is the proof 
that he was going to keep all these promises about the kingdom if they asked. Look again at the end of verse 13. Really look at it and think about it. The Holy Spirit. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And you kind of have to underline Holy Spirit because you have to ask, why is he here in this verse all of a sudden? That's the question. Why does he bring up the father giving the Holy Spirit as proof that he's gonna keep all the promises about the kingdom? And I don't have the time to give all the Old Testament background, but if you have the time, you can read Joel or Ezekiel. Those are two of the key texts behind this. And you'll see there that the Holy Spirit is here because he's one of the signs that we have moved on into a new stage of how God's accomplishing his plan to establish the kingdom. So I hope you're following and I'm not making this too confusing. But the problem the disciples were facing was that the kingdom was not coming how they thought it was. And Jesus is telling them, what do you do? First, don't be a Martha, be a Mary. Make sure you're really listening to what I'm saying. Which, of course, was the whole problem they were having at the moment while he was with them. And second, keep on praying. The cross shouldn't stop you from praying for the kingdom to come. The, the persecutions, the difficulties shouldn't stop you from pr for praying for the kingdom to come. Because it's coming. Ask and you will receive. As Jesus is going to be crucified, he knows they were going to be tempted to think that meant God wasn't keeping his promises like we are all the time. But Jesus says it didn't mean that. And so he's explaining what they need to do, what we need to do. We need to keep praying. We need to keep asking. We need to keep seeking. We need to keep knocking. And we should do it with confidence. Why? Because God's good. He, he's not evil. And he proves that by telling the disciples he would hear their prayers and keep on moving forward with his plan and send the Holy Spirit if they ask, which was the next big stage in God's kingdom plan. And if I, I lost you, listen, because I'm saying, if you read the book of Acts, he did. God did exactly what Jesus says he would. You remember how does Acts begin? Prayer, corporate prayer, Acts 1. And then Acts 2 is what? The Holy Spirit comes down. The disciples end up obeying Jesus. They kept on praying. And what happened? God kept his promise and gave the Holy Spirit. And the fact that he kept his promise to them should motivate us to keep on praying now. Big prayers, confident prayers, hopeful prayers. As we look out there at this world, it's so evil. It's so broken. It looks like the church is losing. What do we do? We pray. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying confidently because first of all, this is exactly how Jesus said it would be right now. And second of all, this is what Jesus says we should be doing. Make sure we listen to him and make sure we're crying out. How? By going back to the scripture and looking at what God says he's gonna do and asking him to do it because he's going to keep his promise. And I know, sure, yeah, it's Good Friday this week where Jesus is crucified. And yet one reason Good Friday is good is because the rejection of Israel, the rejection of Jesus by Israel, the, the, the death of Christ on the cross, that doesn't mean Jesus has lost. 
it doesn't mean that God's done with his plan. It's actually the next step in the plan. Jesus had to die to deal with the problem of sin. He, he couldn't establish his perfect kingdom if he didn't deal with the reason the world is so broken. And that's what he was doing on the cross. It wasn't a failure, it was victory. And yet how do I know it was a victory? And how do I know that God's still moving on with the plan I read about in scripture? One reason I know is because he sent the Holy Spirit, just like he said he would. He gave the Holy Spirit to those who asked him, and he still does. Let's pray. Father, your word is beautiful. Help us to hear it, to listen, and to be transformed by it. Thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. We can't fix this world, Lord, but you can. And we look back to Jesus and we see the first stage is accomplished. You have, you have dealt with the penalty of sin and you have dealt with one of the biggest consequences of sin, death. And yet, Lord, we know there's still more as we read in your word about what you plan to do. And one of the big things we long for is for you to deal with the presence of sin. We long for the day when there is no more sin. And so, Jesus, we ask, and we ask confidently, um, your kingdom come. Please keep these promises. And we can pray that confidently because we see you've already gone to the next stage. You've sent the Holy Spirit. You're a God who always does what he says he'll do. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.